I first met Andrew Bostick when I was invited to fish with a regular angler of his, Bob Copras. You know, you never see guides anywhere fishing in shorts, but Andrew does. Was that a red flag? Within a few hours, I quickly realized what an incredible fisherman he is. We saw fish everywhere, and his eyes were amazing. The next day, his stories told of how he and his partner dominated the Redfish Tour for 10 years and his family's deep roots in the Marco Island area since the late 1800s. This is Bostick's story. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way, so I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Andrew, it's great to have you on the podcast. Um, we had a chance to meet when I was fishing with uh, Bob Copras. He hired me or bought me in an auction for BTT exactly. to come fish with me. He said, no, what? I don't want to fish with you. You come fish with me and my guide, which was you, obviously. Yeah. And I don't know how many days we fished together now, but you are one of the most remarkable guides I've ever fished with. Uh, thanks. Thank you know, the way you... Your demeanor, your work ethics, your your sight is unbelievable. You, you know, uh, you find fish, but you're cool. Well, I do it every day, so but, yeah, there's no who, reason to try to show that something that I'm not. Did you? Who'd you learn from? The dynamics of being a guide and being a fisherman, or just your personality on a boat? Well, that's just my personality. But uh, learning fishing was from my father, no question, and my uncle. I had an uncle that was a guide here on Marco. So I spent a lot of time growing up with him, but my father took me fishing every chance we got, either fishing or hunting. But, and your roots are very deep over here from the 1800s. Tell me about that. Yeah, his family moved here in the late 1800s. Uh, my dad was born in 1935, grew up here on Marco and, and ended up, both his parents had died the time he was 11. So he was in Fort Myers, which is where I grew up ultimately. Um, but he spent a lot of time here in Marco because of family members, so I did also. And your fa your father was very involved with fisheries management. He was, yeah. He he was fortunate. He was in the road construction business. He was an accountant by profession, but uh, he basically retired when he was 45, pretty young, and did a lot of other stuff because he had investments. He could retire and do a lot of fisheries management. He was, uh, he and Alex Jernigan started FCA in Florida, which is now CCA. So they're big conservationists. They, he was one of the founding members of BTT. 
so he's been really involved in a lot of this stuff. It's nice to have, uh, you know, Nikki and I, obviously, I've been a fisherman, not necessarily a hunter my whole life, but it was so easy for him to get involved because he had that interest. And you had that interest. I've got two other sons, and they're completely uninterested with fishing. So luckily, I got at least one out of three that, that connected, you know, with all this. Yeah. Well, I was a big pain in the ass growing up. I was dyslexic. I was hyperactive. My mother didn't want me around. Take that kid fishing. <laughs> <laughs> no, she loved me, but she I was a handful, I guess. So Were you a rebel? No, not so much. I was just a typical kid that was hyperactive and aggravating, I suppose. And she's like, take him. From a from a young age, were you was your mindset always to, to be a fishing guide? Not necessarily. Even even as an adult, you know, when I grew up, I went to college. I I hated school. I couldn't stand going to school. I all the way through, even into college, I I didn't want to be there. But I didn't want to be a disappointment to my parents. I wanted to have a good job and be productive. And for some stupid reason, I didn't think being a fishing guide was necessarily something to be proud of necessarily, which I obviously was mistaken. I think it's a great job. Um, but I made it almost all the way through college. I had about three classes left to graduate, and I just decided I'd had enough and quit, started selling real estate a little bit part-time and guiding. And while probably doing 100 days a year while I was selling real estate and Decided after five years that I loved the job. It was a good living, great people. You get to not work while you're working. Right. So it worked out well for me. I've I've created a great business. I've been doing it 34 years now and love going to work every day still. Right. But you had a great run on the Redfish tour. I mean, you banked some good money on that uh, on that tour. We did well. That was, I was guiding almost 300 days a year then. I was really fishing a lot and i've fished a couple of the igfa series tournaments and thought this is really cool so i thought well you know if i could cut back and fish 200 days a year and go do this 100 days a year it might be a great way of having a lifestyle and it it was for about almost 10 years we did that and very fortunate we did well we worked hard at it but we did really well at it so so you were I think four to five times grand champion. Yeah, we won the year. probably four or five times. Won championship, uh, I think, two or three times. Team of the year three times. We did did pretty well with it. And what's the average price money you're talking if you win one of those tournaments? <laughs> it changed. Like uh, for a regular event, it was like thirty five, forty thousand dollars. A championship, I think, was probably seventy five thousand dollars. Wow. Uh, the trick was to have sponsors and have bonus money in your sponsorship. So if you won. A seventy-five thousand dollars tournament, you could get another seventy-five in bonus money. And you were saying early on in those tournaments, there were about one hundred and ten boats. And yeah, cut back to forty and fifty. Later in the season, yeah, it dropped back to, to a smaller number. They were looking at making TV shows for ESPN more than anything, so uh, it made it a lot nicer with smaller fields. You got to know everybody, and and the pressure on the fishery wasn't near as bad. And the local people, they hate it when 110 boats showed up. They pounded the crap out of all their fish. So with smaller fields, you were a little more invited at least. So tell, tell me about your mindset. Like you would go into North Carolina or Texas in a place that you've never fished before. What was your mindset going in and how many pre-fish days would you fish? We typically pre-fished a week. Um, 
you could do research up to a couple of weeks out and you couldn't really talk to anybody, but you'd look at the time of year, what fish should be doing. Okay. It's summertime. They should be out on the flats or it's wintertime. It's cold. Fish are probably going to be in channels or potholes or whatnot. And you just start looking for those areas. And sometimes you draw blanks. So you look at other areas. So you just keep looking at different scenarios, different areas till you find a pattern. Once you find a pattern, you try to replicate that pattern. Now, would you look at maps or how would you oh, yeah. understand where to try to fish estuaries and wherever you were going to go? I mean, Google Earth was not available. It was then. not available then. No, there was a, there was a company called Standard Map and he had aerials. So we could get by standard mapping if they were available in that area. And we'd study those different places off those maps. And what would you look for? What would, what would stand out when you looked at a map and you'd think, okay, this looks like a good spot. What, just depending on where you were and what time of year it was, what scenario, like, are you going to fish in Louisiana? Okay. Are, are the fish in the ponds? Uh, are they on the outside edges? Are you looking flowing water or stagnant water? Um, every area had its own personalities. Like Louisiana, everybody's going to have 27 inch fish, which was our upper fish. We had to have two fish a day, 27 inch max. 90% of fields going to have that. You got to figure out where the fat fish are there. Other short areas, fat ones because it's, it's a weight fish tournament, right? Exactly. And, and numbers didn't really mean a whole lot. You were limited to how many fish a day. Exactly. You had two fish a day. Only two. For two days and the top five teams fished the third day. So if you're in Fort Myers or Florida, I should say, you better have close to 27 inch fish. You're not necessarily, everybody's going to have that by any stretch. So you were just trying to look at the biggest fish you could in, in Florida. Um, just depending on the area you're in. So you go to Louisiana or Venice and you catch a 45 pound monster redfish. It's just worthless. Worthless. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't even look in those places and we kind of specialize in sight fishing. We really focused as much as we could on polling and sight fishing. A lot of boats ran bay boats and they blind casted some boats fished jetties or deeper jigs and whatnot. We, we could see the fish and we wouldn't even cast a lot of fish just because we knew it was too small, too big. Don't even mess with them. What was your biggest run in one of those tournaments? What do you mean? Oh, distance-wise? Distance-wise. Oh, um, we won a tournament from Panama City to, or excuse me, Pensacola to Panama City. It's 105 miles. So we did that three days in a row. So it's two, 210 miles a day. Yeah. yeah that Back was and forth. Well. There's guys doing a lot more than that, though. Uh, we did an Orange Beach to Louisiana one trip. Uh, the first day of Slick Calm, no problem. Got over there, probably caught 80 fish. Uh, went back second day, a front went through, and it was horrible. Uh, we ripped the console loose from the boat, beat the trolling motor off it, broke the boat pretty much. Wow. Yeah, it was bad. How's your body feel after all that run? Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, your back is yeah, the worst? my back would really get hurt. And just you'd get stiff from inflammation. Right. Um, I found a little inflammation pill called Mobic or Meloxicam that I would take occasionally, and it would loosen you up a little bit but right. it's tough it was I, hard on I you i think you told me one time that you guys were transporting ladders yeah we tell we, me about that i shouldn't say we started the ladder because i we'd seen a team occasionally do it um but nobody was doing it regularly so my partner got this idea that we need to be able to see better because we were sight fished so we pulled into a lowe's and he walked in to buy a six foot ladder and came out with an eight foot ladder because that's what they had. And we strapped it to the front. 
And I think the first two tournaments we fished with the ladder, we won. We top five every tournament that year off the ladder. So, so everybody one, had ladders after that. One of you guys would have to hold the ladder at the bottom to stabilize it, and the other guy was on, on top fishing? We tied to tie it down best we could. We had spring cleats up front, and we tie it on each side. And he, I think Mark fell off at one time was all. <laughs> what kind of a hit was that? He he actually went, was coming down. He had a fish on and was coming down the ladder and, and jumped once he knew he was falling. So he it saved it. But they showed that on ESPN about 800 times. <laughs> okay. So it's good, good. So you, you came up with the ladder system and then everyone shortly. Yeah. Like I say, there was a couple guys that done it once or twice over several years. But yeah, after that we did. Now <laughs> at the second year, they outlawed them. You weren't allowed to have them. It had to be affixed to the deck. So that's when the towers started coming, these big high towers and in the front of boats now that you see today. Uh, they're all welded and fold down when they're trailer and whatnot. And for the most part, your your mindset going into these tournaments, everyone would run big runs, but I heard that you like to stay close by to early, fish longer. Early on, that was definitely the case. Later, you know, we started stretching it out a little bit. But early on, that was there's plenty of fish close by we found, and we did really well doing that. So, so you guys dominated. Some years. You won so, four out of five, four to five years out of, out of a 10-year span. Yeah, we did pretty well. Uh, I think team of year three times. So we did, yeah, we did well. I think you also told me your your teammate had unbelievable eyes. He did. Mark up. He, he didn't grow up fishing like a lot of us did, but he, he was just a natural athlete, and he picked up things. And he had incredible eyes he i have pretty good eyes and he would see fish long before i did very often that's crazy i remember fishing with you one day you said to bob and i okay i got to fish at 10 o'clock i'm going to pull towards him you tell me when you see him <laughs> i think you pulled for 15 minutes and finally i saw him 10 feet from the boat yeah it you know it just different scenarios but he mark had great eyes he did really well with that so that we made a good team i was used to pulling because i pull every day so I could pole a lot, and, and he'd be on the bow a lot of times, or vice versa, but he could see him. What kind of boats were you running back then? We were sponsored by Maverick. So we had a uh, either 21 Redfisher or 21 Maverick, and then we had whatever their polling skiff was, typically their tunnel. So we fished out both of them. We fished out of the tunnel probably more than the bigger boat. Though. That's probably a pretty hard run for the flat-bottom boat. Oh, like yeah. yeah, for long runs. It's like that big long run we fished out of. I think we had a Pathfinder that year, 22 Pathfinder. Do you still love redfish as much as you used to? Yeah. No, I enjoy catching them. I still spend them about a month in Louisiana every year. Oh, you do? Yeah, I go out there and stay in a friend's house at Venice. You guide over there? I do, yeah. So now you're looking for the big ones. Yeah, yeah. We do a lot of the big ones. I like fishing the marsh still, so I snipe fishing is my favorite. So right. we do some of the big ones and get that out of the way. This year, the big ones were in the marsh, and it was great. We caught a lot of big fish right up in the marsh until the hurricane came. Right. So you're over there before the hurricane. Yeah, I typically go. Most of the guys go when the water's much cleaner and the bigger fish push in the marsh, which is October, November, December. Right. I usually go in August. There's hardly anybody there. And nice. It's, it's kind of pleasant. It's You don't have the clean water necessarily, but I'm used to pretty dirty water in this part of the world, so we can make do. Right. So before the podcast, you were talking about how the tournaments would regulate cheating. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, it's. I mean, the the easiest way was a polygraph that we had to take. If you were leading the first day, you had to take a polygraph mandatory. Um, then they would randomly select a couple other teams, and sometimes you could influence their randomly selecting if you had some 
suspicions on people. Um, but they, they relied on us to watch each other too. And uh, nobody wants somebody cheating against them. Was there a lot of cheating going on? I don't think a lot. No, I think the biggest cheating that was going on was maybe uh, information, getting information, local information inside the window that you weren't allowed to. Uh, That's but, interesting. Why did they? Why was that banned where you couldn't speak to anybody with inside those two weeks? I guess I didn't want somebody coming in talking to local guides and whatnot that were fishing every day. Telling you guys, telling that one team it's hot over here yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it's kind of funny because uh, you regularly figured whoever was from that area was going to win the tournament. And logically speaking, that would right. be and rarely those guys won. It was usually somebody from outside the area that. Uh, you get so used to looking in your spots and not outside the window, so to speak, that you, the local guys didn't always win the tournament by any stretch. What made you guys better than everybody else? I don't know that so we were better than anybody else, but we, well, you we were. More. Yeah, we we were persistent. We worked hard at it. I mean, we fished long pre-fish hours. Um, several years I had another team, Rick Murphy and his partner, that we shared information so we would split up and we'd have four boats on the water out looking. So a lot of teams would, them and their partner would be out looking. So that's one boat an hour on the water. Um, so we worked hard. We right. really worked hard at it like it was a job. How'd you get into the tournaments, the redfish tournaments? Because you're a guide over here at Marco Island, probably having a good time catching a bunch of snook yeah. and redfish and tarpon. And all of a sudden you thought, let's go to the redfish tour. I've got, I had a customer then. I still have him now. John Landry, great guy. He wanted to fish a couple of these old local IFA tournaments, which are kind of regional tournaments. And we fished them and did well. And I thought, man, this is really cool. This is fun. There were some other teams I, were, I got to be friends with, and I decided I was going to see if I could make it work. So it worked out real well, and, and John fished some of the events with me. Um, that's, that's basically where it started and snowballed from there. Right. When did you feel like, you know – I'm kind of over these tournaments. I want to go back to my normal program in Marco Island. Yeah, it was, there was a couple things that happened. Um, there, we actually witnessed a team cheating and protested them and they didn't disqualify them. They just fined them. They, they ultimately ended up winning the tournament. They gave them the money anyway. Yeah. So they won $75,000 and got fined 5,000. so that, that was a little disappointing. That kind of wow. soured it for me. Um, I was getting kind of tired of it. My kids were getting older. I've got three children. Uh, my last one was a senior in high school, and I thought, you know, I need to spend more time at home. Right. So I was getting close anyway. That worked out. Well, Ultimately, the ESPN ended just coincidentally that same time frame. I had nothing to do with the other, though. Right. Well, you've got a 287-pound 280 tarpon in your back bedroom. <laughs> yeah. Tell yeah. me about that big fish. Oh, my God. That's a funny story. I, it was a customer I'd never fished before. I never caught tarpon before, of course. It's all just the guy that catches that one. And he caught about a 140 maybe an hour before that on 20 pounds plug rod. And they caught that fish. Yeah, about a two-hour battle, probably longer it needed to be. He didn't even know how to fight a fish. And uh, we landed the fish. That was back in the... I'd have to go back and look, 2000 range, so 20 some years ago. So we lip gas fish back then, and we hauled him up on the deck for a few pictures and length girthed him and released him. What were those numbers? I don't remember. 52 inch girth, I do remember that. The length, somewhere in the 90, mid 90s, wow. 98s. 
And you guesstimated it to be around 287. On length earth, yeah. Yeah. It was a big one. <laughs> How often do you see real big fish over here? You know, we get big fish, early fish, or like our February fish are usually bigger, January fish. That's when I catch all the really biggest fish. Uh, when the real migration starts and a lot of fish start coming in, that mixes them up a lot more, I think. Right. What did your dad... Um, what do you remember the early years fishing over here? But you were in Fort Myers, right? We were in Fort Myers. We came down to Marco a lot and fished uh, with my uncle because he was a full-time guide and we he just loved fishing like I do. Uh, so we'd come down and fish to him. But Fort Myers and, and down here, ball, we bait fish mostly. That uh, was just a common way of fishing back then. Right. Um, you kept most everything you caught. It was legal. So back then, I think I snuck out to be all of 18 inches to keep now they're 28 i think when they're open right so but it was great times you know you got to do something other than go to school you were fishing <laughs> i i asked you if you ever fished homosassa and you said that you never had to go up there because fishing right off the coast in sanibel and just south of boca grand was unbelievable talk about those days yeah it was really good you know to catch those giant fish was important to some people and it's and i understand that it wasn't important to me at that time i just wanted to catch fish and a lot of fish and we had a lot of fish then. We had piles of fish. I had a, a good friend who I grew up with in high school. He's actually 10 years older than I am, but I was around him. He had a little tackle store I built rods in. His name's Phil O'Bannon. And Phil and I started fishing the beach off Sanibel and Captiva all the way up to Boca Grande. There was nobody doing it then, really. I mean, you very rarely ever saw anybody doing it. And we were bait fishing most of it. We started fly fishing them. And there was a lot of fish then. There was nobody bothering them. And you were pitching crabs to them when you weren't fly fishing, or what were you doing? Typically not crabs. We were throwing uh, threadfin herring and shiners and penfish at them. Uh, they ate them up, no problem. Uh, and then we started fly fishing, you know, old fiberglass fly rods with scientific angler reels, and and they ate flies really well, too. <laughs> we had a good time doing that. Who got you into fly fishing? Really no one particular person. For some reason, I was doing a ton of fishing. I was probably 15 years old, and there was a neighbor down the street, I guess, who all he did was fishing hunt. He, saw, he was a realtor, so he had a lot of time when he could do that. And I remember, I guess, now you mentioned it, he, he was starting to catch a lot of jacks. That's where I really learned how to catch strong fish on light line because we would catch these 8, 10, 12-pound jacks in the Clusatchee River on 6-pound spin rod. And he started catching them on a fly rod. So I probably started doing it with him a little bit back then. Tell me about the um, Boca Grande area. Did you fish up there a fair amount? Yeah, we fished basically from Boca Grande south all down the beach. Um, those early years, they were just giant schools of tarpon would migrate through. I mean, there'd be hundreds of fish in schools, and they were unmolested and stupid. Right. So we had we had a lot of fun, and then the pressure got to be more and more. Then when the river runs through it, era came through, everybody in the world started fly fishing, and it got just ridiculous. Um, there were times there'd be 50, 60, 70 boats on the beach fly fishing tarpon, and that ruined it. Was that I, early 90s? When was that? When I was remember that I was in Home Assass in the late 80s, and I was with Tommy Locke up there, and it was just terrible fishing. You'd make one cast every three days. Oh. And I told Tommy, I said, this 
go catch a fish. Let's just go to Boca Grande or wherever we have to go, have a hamburger, and I don't care what we throw. So we ran down to Boca Grande, had a hamburger, bought 12 crabs, and he had some spinning rods, and we went out there, and all of a sudden we found ourselves inside of a whirlpool, a a daisy (laughs) chain of I don't know how many hundreds of fish. And long story short, we had 12 crabs, and we hooked 12 tarpon. I don't know how many we caught. And then we were up on the beach, and the following morning we had a group of fish that were nice and happy and blooping and rolling around softly, and we'd go in there, and we'd start fishing for them, and another uh, boat with a trolling motor would see us and other groups, and they'd just run over and start throwing you know, yeah. they're, they're crabs or whatever right on top of our flies. That's what it got to be. Uh, before that, it was insane. We'd get these crab hatches. Well, they weren't really hatches. They were going out to, my, to a spawn. So they come out of the pass by the thousands. And we get up on the south bar of the Boca Grande Pass, and there'd be schools coming out feeding on those crabs. And we did what we call split day then. We'd go in the morning, daylight till maybe 930, then come in the middle of the day and go back out in the afternoon, depending on when the tide was. You'd spend the whole middle part of the day tying flies and leaders because you would go out in the afternoon and jump 20-plus fish. See, and we'd pop them. We weren't unhooking them. We'd just get them on the boat, pop them off, put another fly on. So it was – it wasn't hard to hook a fish. If they were coming out, you put a fly in them, you were going to hook them. Most of the time, we had uh, my 21 Mavericks. So I'd put a guy in the front and a guy in the back, and they were doubled up most schools. It was cool. What's it like up there now in the hill? I remember doing that with Tommy. Yeah. You know, the, a little hundred boats. Hundred boats. Yeah. That's not uncommon. And we weren't fishing the hill all that much. We were fishing a just shallow bar on the outside of the pass. Right. And those fish would come out of the pass on the same tide that you're talking about. And it's two and a half, three feet, four feet of water, clear. Nice. Big, you know, seventy five fish wads coming out, fifty fish wads. When you say you weren't fishing the hill, what is, what is that? The hill is the top end of the pass, uh, when, and it comes out of that deep water up into shallower water up to maybe 20, 25 feet of water. And those fish all push up there eating those crabs because they want to get to them first, so they just keep pushing up more and more and more. And then somewhere along in that tide, they all drop out to the back end, and they'll get down at the bottom end of the pass feeding on those crabs. And then that is usually the fuller dark moon in May or June, a lot of those fish will bunch up and just take off and you can follow them for miles offshore and they're going to spawn and they'll disappear for three or four days and sometime in the morning you'll see them coming back big wads of them coming back in after the spawn did you always have was there always a shark problem there or was that in the no. later years there's always been sharks no question but it's far far worse now they've trained them so those fish you know i hear stories of guys losing 60 70 80 percent of their fish to sharks now Oh, I'm which, surprised the uh, fishing game allows that. Yeah, you know, I don't know where what you do about it. Um, you just tell everybody they can't fish anymore there. Well, you yeah. just maybe have some, like, a closed area. I mean, if you look at uh, the Keys. But they're on the beach the same way. They get out on the beach on those schools. Those schools are so big now, those sharks follow the schools. And so they're not, the sharks are not just in the past. No, no they're outside the past. They're big big sharks well theoretically they saved you know a, a good part of the population regarding tarpon by banning the coon pops correct or not that's depends who you're talking to act and i may be ignorant because i really didn't have a dog in the fight so i wasn't in it all the time but the coon pop was a big circle hook 
and the fish swim in the line and it pulls up and hooks them in the face somewhere in their cheek or face. All snags. Snags, okay, but what's the difference between snagging him inside the mouth and snagging him right here? It's still a snag, yeah. It's a snag, but what's the difference to a J-hook snagging him inside the mouth or snagging him here? They pull the same. I don't know how it's killing that fish mm. necessarily. Now, if you're snagging them in other places and pulling them backwards or sideways, I think most of the fish were hooked in the outside cheek. Now, it could be my ignorance because I really wasn't there watching it all the time. Maybe it was worse than I saw. I didn't see that. It was that big a deal. I think they were just catching a lot more fish right that's what i mean by that catching they were more catching fish. a lot more fish yeah. that's what i'm thinking because the, of there are more fish on the, on the end of a line exactly yeah. so just percentage wise whether you caught 10 fish today and one got eight or you caught 40 fish and four of them got eight right you it's know. a numbers thing i've always wondered why and um they would allow something like that but it is what it is it is what it is yeah uh, were you ever into record fishing by chance? I never did a lot of it. Um, that same customer I mentioned earlier, John Landry's son, he got, was around about the time the junior records were coming out. They were trying to do some promotional stuff, get people involved, I'm sure. And we did some tarpon fishing, caught him some record tarp. Is that all. Josh? No, his name's John. Oh, John. John, John Landry. Right. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, he's a great story. He, John was one of my earliest customers, and his son was, I don't know, six years old, seven years old at the time. And he's now 30 and is a guide also. He's guided in Alaska at my recommendation 11 years. And he's just a fantastic kid and loves fishing. And it's, it's really been great mentoring. Your work ethics are pretty impressive. I mean, you've been doing this, would you say, 34 years? Yep. And you still, from December until, what, June, you only take two days off a month? Yeah, that's pretty much it. What else would I be doing? You must like, what do you like more, money or fishing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I never no, get to spend the money. Yeah. No, I mean, it's hard to be in the sun all day long. And as a guide, uh, I think it takes a different uh, mindset and a personality to always want to give and, and be caring for these people to catch fish it's 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 hard i know when i have somebody on my boat it's a friend i don't even get paid i can't sleep the night before because i'm so worried about finding fish for these people you know yeah you get used to it it i just like going i enjoy being there in fact if i have like middle of the season cancellation i can't fill it's like a pretty good chance i'm gonna go fishing anyway I mean, yeah i just i know that if it's nice weather and the fish are going to be there, I want to go be there. You want to be in it. If it's crappy out, maybe not so bad. But right. It's but what if it's not tarpon season? Will you still go out there and plug fish? And... If I have a couple of days off, yeah. If I'm off three or four days for some reason. So you still love it more than other ever. Oh yeah, I love going. I do. That's awesome. And How I'm did... lucky, you know. It basically until tarpon season starts, I plug fish. I do snook and redfish and small tarpon and. I got a lot of guys that just fish by themselves, one guy, and they don't care if I stay in the background and throw the motor and plug behind them. So I, I get to fish a good amount still. I think Huff does the same. He does, yeah. Yeah. Um, is there a pecking order uh, as far as the, the fish themselves? Like, do you like tarpon the best and then snook and then redfish? or Probably I like tarpon the best till the end of the season. I'm over them. <laughs> but... Uh, snook would be a close second. I love catching big snook. Um, 
just fun. Right. It's a blast. Topwater snook is awesome. Because it's kind of funny. I used to think that I was such a tarpon guy. And in the beginning, I was a tarpon and a bonefish guy. And then I was a, a black tip spinner shark guy. You know, it's like, I love what's in front of me. Yeah, I got a buddy that told me one time, and it, I've never forgotten it. It's all about the bite, whether it's a crappie or a tarpon. It's that all about first the bite. You feel bite. that thump. Yeah. After that, you really doesn't matter. But after 40 years, well, I've, I started fishing when I was, I think, maybe seven years old. And I've always loved to fish, but the last 40 years, I've been really invested with the whole tarpon thing and tournaments and, and whatnot. But I was thinking recently, if I had one last fish to catch, most likely it would be a tailing fish being a bonefish or a permit waiting. It's so organic. And I think that's one reason why I kind of like fishing alone. Nobody, even, you know, sure, I love fishing with Nicky. He's my, my, my best friend, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so organic waiting for fish. You know, nobody to talk to. There's no boat. There's there's just you and the breeze and, and the fish. Yeah, I hear you. I, had, I, I take a, maybe a step back from that. I, I just like being alone as far as me and my customer or me and my friend. Um, that's the problem with today's world is getting more and more crowded and more people. And I've been very fortunate living down here. There haven't been a lot of people. It's hardly anybody now. There's... There's boats around, and you got to work to find places away from them. Uh, I remember talking to Steve Huff about people being in your spots. Well, they're not really your spots, but you felt like they were. And I said, "What? You know, you grew up in the Keys. What did you do about people seeing you in places and being there?" And I said, it's "So infuriating. You want to be there? There's somebody there." And in his word, "Tough shit." <laughs> so what do you mean? What are you going to do about it? He said, it'll make you better. You're going to go find a new spot. He's right. And then it gets so bothersome, he just moved. Well, that's true. Tough he, finally just, <laughs> he finally just left the keys. He did. Are yeah, you man. starting to see that kind of a scenario now in the Everglades area? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's places that, you know, you'd fish. You wouldn't see anybody ever. And now there's some spots that are some of my really favorite tarpon spots, early season spots that you'll get, and you might get two days, one day. It would be unbelievable still. Next day, there might be three boats there. Oh. Next day, there might be eight boats there. How did they figure out? Well, they figured it out just like I did. It's the right time of year. The temperature's right. It's calm. They should be there, I guess, but it's just it's not as much fun. I usually leave. I get there, there's three or four boats there. I'll go somewhere else. Right. It's a big area. I don't even want to look at them. You don't want to see the other boats near you. How often are you finding new spots? You know, they might not often new, but there are spots that I fished uh, that weren't any good, and now they're better because they've changed. You know, there changes all the time here, and places that last year weren't any good this year can be really good. It might not be good for the next four years. Um, I don't know if it's current changes or storms. bottom structure. Storms are definitely a big part of it. Um, pressure. People starting to push them around a little different. So, yeah, you find maybe a same shoreline you fished last year, but you fished 400 yards down the way there, and this year they're 400 yards back this way on a different part of them. So there's 
definitely finding new spots. Do you, on an average day of guiding, spend a certain amount of time during that day looking at a new spot you've never fished without telling your client? I used to do that a lot, every day. Because you yeah. gotta, you gotta find stuff. Absolutely, it's a big world out there. Um, I don't do it as much as I used to. Now, I might fish down a shoreline, a different part that I hadn't really fished in the last year or so, and look at it. Right. And you do find, you know, just like I was talking about, the fish will move to different parts from year to year. But after thirty-four years, you know a lot of yeah. You think you know it anyway, here. but there's still some areas I I could probably. It gets to the point where. I really don't want to run another hour. I was just thinking about that. You know, that's some of the guys, they don't even stop for an hour, hour and 20 minutes. They run. I got a lot of places I don't have to run near that far. They're still good, but I start seeing boats. And so, yeah, I just get tired of boat rides. I want to fish. Right. But there's times I do those runs. Definitely. Has there been anything new in your repertoire in the last five years? That was really an eye-opener, like, oh, my God, this really works well. Oh, just different lures come out. Um, I fish a lot of Z-Man products. They've got that Elastec material. It's fantastic. Um, there's live targets. Make some great bait. <clears throat> Excuse me, great baits. Um, that whole swim bait stuff is really good. Boats are also improving. I fish out of a Maverick, and it's a fantastic little boat. Yeah, there's stuff changes all the time. Right. So you just went down to this, uh, I think you went down to Bolivia. I did. chased Golden Dorado. Yeah, that was fun. Tell, tell us about that trip. That was a great trip. I, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I thought I'd been to the end of the world, but we would, went another day and a half past there. It was it was really in the middle of nowhere. Um, some local Indian, indigenous people there that lived, but otherwise I never heard a plane go by in a week. Never saw anybody other than a few of these locals. Uh, there's jaguar tracks in the sand everywhere you go. Wow. Uh, fishing was phenomenal. They're big golden rods up to about 25 pounds we caught. Um, you don't catch a lot of them because they're really fierce. They bite down on the hook so much you don't even get the hook in them when you strip set. But it, it was cool. It was a lot of fun. And you were saying to get to these spots, you would... You would uh take a motorcycle 45 minutes and then a canoe ride 45 minutes and then walk eight to 12 miles up river. You could do that. Yeah. You could start right at the camp and start fishing and it was good down to there. But if you wanted to fish areas, you know, it's like a lot of lodges they are fished every day for six months of the year. So those close by fish get a little bit of pressure. If you're willing to do a little bit of work, you could get away from them. They were really stupid up in those areas. It was not an easy trip. It was, you come home tired every night. It was fun. It was, was a great trip. Was that an, an American outfit? Yeah, I know. It's an Argentinian group, um, Untamed Anglers. Okay. Yeah. It was a um, Pluma River. was the river we were on. It was cool. Parrots flying around, monkeys. That's awesome. Uh, we had, they had a pet ferret they had found as a baby that would run around there and chew on everything he had. He bit the hell out of me one day. <laughs> Don't worry, he's fine. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Show my ankle that. Uh, he snuck under one of one of our guys' beds in the middle of the night, crawled up in bed with him, scared the hell out of the poor guy. Wow. And you were saying those pakus are pretty difficult to catch. How how were you catching them? Yeah, they were. Uh, they eat berries mostly, seeds and berries that fall out of trees. And we caught them on just an Enrico 
bait fish patterns in, in running water. If, if it wasn't running, they, they could identify it wasn't a bait, berry and they wouldn't eat it. But if you got in turbulent water or something, they would have, they were like a permit. I mean, they were a hundred yard, 150 yard run. They were good fun. Very cool. Anywhere else you would like to go fishing? Oh, I like traveling. I enjoy it. I go to the Bahamas every year. I take a group over there. Um, I'm trying to put an Argentinian trip uh, trout fishing together right now. Uh, I've been fortunate. I've traveled around a good bit. Argentina before, uh, New Zealand, been Alaska. Been kind of all over the place. In my mind, when you're traveling all these different destinations and airplane rides and hotels and getting stung by mosquitoes and all this sorts of crap, you're you're thinking in the back of my mind, oh God, I wish I was in this bay in Ten Thousand Islands right now. <laughs> Sometimes you, I think more than that, you it makes you appreciate what you got. You know, it's awesome seeing new worlds, uh, new fisheries, new everything. But you come home, you think, man, we really got a great fishery here. We really do have mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Now, whether it's what I like to do, I don't know, but we do have a really good fishery here. You've got a good permit fishery too. Is, is that? No, we don't have any permit here. <laughs> all right <laughs> we won't talk about that then <laughs> no I, we've been lucky you know we've we've held up unfortunately we got a lot of people moving to florida i guess that's a good and a bad thing um unfortunately management is i think at best keeping up with it uh, there's a lot of stuff needs to be done you know my father i mentioned was one of the starters of CCA, he was there when they made redfish a game fish. Um, redfish were in bad shape at the time. They came back really well, and they've kind of fluctuate from good to bad. Um, snook, once again, they've done a lot of things on snook. CCA, I think, has done a great job in trying to conserve. A lot. There's a lot of conservation groups out there right now, whether it counts for clean water or CCA or any of a number one. I think they're all well-intended. They all want the same goal. Unfortunately, they tend to infight a little bit. It's, I liken it to football games or teams. You got one you sure. like, he's got one he likes, I got one I like. They all want the same thing. Um, it'd be nice to see them all focus together and maybe have the same target. What would be the number one thing of your concern that you would like to see changed or fixed or saved? Um, well, right now I've got a hot spot for, you know, because of the red tide and whatnot, the areas from us north is closed all the way up to Tampa for harvest of snook and redfish, and they leave us open. Uh, guess what happens? Everybody yeah. comes here. So yeah. we're getting inundated. I'd like to see if they're going to do something like that, close the whole West Coast, because we're getting undue pressure from all that. So I think that's a something they're missing at FWC that they could definitely improve on. Water quality obviously is a change. I don't necessarily, I'm one of the guys that necessarily blame it on the farm. farmers. I think it's just population. There's way more people. There's way more septic tanks. There's way more drainage off roads. And I don't know how we're going to fix that. There's a lot of people smarter me trying to figure that out, obviously. You told me about an ad you placed a long time ago. When your father was involved with the net bands, et cetera. Tell me about that story. Yeah, that was the net band era. Uh, we were trying to get rid of all gill nets in Florida. And had a good friend who was married to my cousin who I'd gill netted with. We, we netted mullet. And so I knew a lot of those guys. A lot of them were my relatives. And I was all for getting rid of the gill nets. Um, so I 
decided locally I wanted to run a full-page ad in a local paper before the election, and it was pretty expensive. It was going to be 1500 bucks or something, which was a lot of money to me then. But I was selling real estate at the time. I could get the real estate ad for $400, but I had to put my name on it. So I decided it was worth it, and I put my name on it, and that didn't really fly too well because everybody knew who I was, and that was my relative. Got quite a few bad threats. What was the worst? Oh, one of them's kid beat my kid up in high school. Uh, they threatened to burn my house, my boat. They, wow. They did, there was a lot of threats. It wasn't pretty. One of them pushed my wife against a car at the gas station. Wow. Yeah, it got pretty nasty. So we had to get nasty back. How'd you do that? <laughs> we just said what we were willing to do if there was a problem. You started carrying guns? <laughs> <laughs> There's always an influx of commercial and recreation. How do you balance that? I don't exactly know what you're asking. Well, you have the commercial people that want to harvest, and you have the, oh, the yeah. recreational people that want to save. Yeah, there's no question there is a balance there. Um, I don't know. It just, you got to figure out how everybody can make a living, I guess, without right. screwing the whole world up. Just limit. Yeah. Limit the at the harvest yeah yeah the netting wasn't a horrible thing there mostly it was a mullet deal right we were trying to get the row it was uh, actually a good thing they banned the nets yeah and they they but during the row season they targeted schools of mullet and pretty much all they caught was mullet yeah I mean, it was the rest of the year and truthfully they may might have even been able to close it during the row season only or open it in the row season only and close the rest of the year because the rest of the year they were running nets around the islands and catching snook and snook, redfish and yeah. everything else, the bycatch. Yeah. So it was, it was the rest of the year was the biggest problem. Um, the pompano fishery has come back tremendously since they had the net. There's lots of pompano now. We we rarely caught pompano. We catch a few, but not a lot. Now you can go catch a pile of them if you want. Right. How did the um, this last year or so affect the numbers game with COVID? We had a lot more people here. Uh, unfortunately, Miami-Dade, Fort Lauderdale area closed all their ramps. And Florida was closed. It, Florida. it closed uh, the Keys for all the month of May. Yeah, but we were open here. Right. And everybody in Miami-Dade and Broward County came over here. How many boats did you see stuck up on the oyster bars? Yeah, you saw some of that, but there were boats everywhere. We we really got overloaded with boats. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a good thing for us. We got piled on. There's a new chip out that shows where to run, wherever you want to run, throughout Florida. Yep. Yep. I can see that you dislike that. No, I like them to outlaw all GPSs. It's pretty. I think it's ruined the offshore fishery. I used to offshore fish a good amount here. Uh, we had old Loran A's and C's, and it kind of gets you close to where you had to be, and then you had to work to find it. Lawrence, our GPSs came along, and you take you right to the spot and it wasn't hard to find and it's really affected the offshore fishery anybody can do it now and the new chips kind of doing the same thing anybody can run the back country in the glades now they can run through anywhere in chuckalusky now it's not hard you still got to fish you still got to learn what you look for but right. the coming and going used to really eliminate a lot of those people but now you have a lot of boats running by exactly yeah how technical is the 10,000 Islands in, in the areas you fish? Like if my father and I were to come down with our watermen and, you know, plug the shorelines and try to, you know, pull the banks and pull the lagoons looking for tarpon and snook, is it is it very technical? 
I mean, you catch fish, definitely catch fish. There's some little keys that you run in water and points and stuff that you would learn. But you pound enough shorelines, you're going to catch fish, no doubt. But there's certainly areas that you'll learn that are much better and much more technical. Yeah, definitely. And throughout the winter, you know, how many days are you really sight fishing as opposed to just casting on the shoreline? There are times I will sight fish. Um, I've got guys that want to do that specifically. I mostly do that if I'm fly fishing, uh, but probably 80% of the time I'm just pounding shorelines, right. pounding holes, pounding channels, you know, whatever I think those fish are in, depending on what the temperatures are. Winter's all about water temperature. So you learn where they're going to be on what temperatures. There'll be nothing on one shoreline on one temperature, but it'll be loaded on another temperature. Did you ever fish the Keys or did you ever, you know, have that mindset of, you know, I want to go down there and start guiding the Keys? No, I never wanted to guide there. I did fish it a good bit. A friend of mine had a house in Big Pine Key in the late 70s. And I went down there a good amount and fished with him, um, I guess, through the middle 80s. And it was it was good then. It was when all the big bone fish were around and, I got to see big schools of permit back then, and I guess I don't see the tail and permit like they used to now in the big schools like they did. Oh, it was it was really good then. We caught a lot of fish, and we didn't know what the heck we were doing. We still caught a lot of fish. And so that's how you know Gordy Hill. You told us a good story about Gordy Hill and his cobia that he caught. I'd like to have <laughs> yeah, you repeat that. I remember he caught a what he thought was going to be a world record at the time all the way out of the content area. He didn't want to kill it in case it was a record, so he put a rope through it and drug it all the way back to Big Pine Key. Took hours to drag back slowly so it didn't kill it. So he could weigh it. So he could weigh it. On his yeah. rock. I don't even know if it was a record. I don't remember the rest of the story. That was impressive enough to hear. Right. But now Gordy's a great guy. I didn't spend a ton of time with him, but a fair amount. And uh, yeah, it was a good crew down there. Jose Wahabi, uh, everybody knows, lived two or three houses down from my buddy's house. So I knew him back then. And Got to be buddies with him, and he'd tell us where to go look. So it was a good one to have telling you where to go peek around and look. Yeah. That was a fun crowd. That was good times. But I I quit going down there somewhere in the probably late 80s. Um, I was down there, and I grew up where if you were falling on a flat, that was your flat. Right. And I got up there, and we were fishing. I turned around. There was like five other boats pulling in behind us. I was like, I'm done. I don't need to be here. Yeah, why would you want to leave this spot over here? Yeah, I don't like being around people a whole lot. Yeah. Just a couple on my boat, and that's it. If you had one last fish to catch, what would it be? Gosh, tarpon or snook, no doubt. With a fly rod? It wouldn't have to be on a fly rod. doesn't matter. It's all about the bite. How big, <laughs> how big would that fish have to be? It wouldn't even have to be a big one. I just like watching them eat. That's my favorite part of a tarpon is watching them eat. It's, right. The, the jumps and all that's great, and it's all fun, but I just love watching that mouth open up and eat a fly. That's when you got them. That's when you got them. All their work is complete. Exactly. The rest of it is real work. Right. No, I think that that's right. It's the, it's the figuring out how to make an animal. How do you convince that animal to do what it's not supposed to do? Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's a great challenge for but sure. But hopefully that won't be for a long time. Yeah. I've got a lot of respect. Oh, of course. What uh, are is there, the fly designs? I can imagine they're pretty simple because you're fishing with off color water over here. Yeah, I'm still, you know, everybody uses synthetics now, and I still I do use some synthetic stuff. I'm still kind of an old timer. I use a lot of natural materials. Right. I use a lot of hackles and furs and 
Uh, the invention of brushes for tying the collars and whatnot are really nice. That makes life a lot easier. For sure. But yeah, pretty basic flies. And it's not hard to get a fish to bite your bug over here, is it? It's not as hard as it is in the Keys. It can be really hard. You know, you over can, here it can yeah, be. it can be, absolutely. If it's cold. Pressure. I think the fishing pressure on them gets them where they get pretty tough. I bet some of your old customers are getting pretty angry and agitated now with the same fish they used to catch 30 years ago. You know, the biggest difference is the laid-up fish. We had a phenomenal laid-up fishery here. The bays, I would say, if you put the fly in the right place, 90% of the fish will eat before. Now 90% of them won't. Maybe higher. They get fished every day, most of them. There's places that people aren't fishing them, but most of the spots people know now. So you so. get 10 shots of laid up fish in dirty water. One or two of them going to eat. Mm, that's probably an exaggeration even. If you're hoping. Yeah, if I, get, if I get 25 shots today, all day, a laid up fish, we'll probably jump two or three fish. Wow. Do your anglers suck? <laughs> no. 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 Some of them do. <laughs> well, that's that's what guys sound good. I mean, they they just turn, swim away a lot of times, or sink. And you say you, you still tie flies with feathers. Is that because you think it works better, or is that your pride? Uh, I think they work better. I want to do whatever works best. They so, move. They move yeah. in the water better, all those yeah. fibers. Absolutely. I still tie some stuff with synthetics, you know, craft furs and whatnot, but I just, I think that's what least works for me best. Yeah. And we don't tie teeny stuff like you guys do. We do when the water gets really clear later in the season, you know, but I I don't think I fish anything less than a one-all, and that's rare. Most of my stuff two-all still. Um, I know you guys get really small down there, but we can get away with it, a little bigger stuff, but. I mean, when I first started doing this, we were fishing four alts, occasionally a five alt hook. and Five inch long flies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I still have some flies that I tie that are five, six inches long. They're big, big black stuff they can see. So it's good when it gets harder, makes you smarter, makes you work harder at it and try to find stuff. Right. Well, anything else you'd like to talk about? Oh, I'm just happy. I've, I've loved being a guide. I love living there on Marco. I've been lucky. I've raised three great kids. Um, it's afforded me to spend a lot of time home when I wasn't traveling on the Redfish Tour. Um, I'm proud of all three of them. My wife's been very tolerant of me doing all this. But it's been a good life. It's right. been a real good life. Well, you're a fun guy to fish with, that's for sure. Well, I appreciate you're that. You're a good man. We need to do more want, of it. Need to do more of it. I want you. Uh, I want Nikki to come over and hang out with us. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I want to see your neck of the woods. I'd that'd, love that. That'd be good. We'll do it for sure. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Love having you. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks it's great a lot. to meet you. Thank you, Bob. Andrew, you're a good man. Thank you. Say hi to Bob for us. I will do it. All right, Copers. Uh, Copers. <laughs> Bob Copers. <laughs> All right, bud. It's obvious why and how the greats stand out and eventually become legendary. But when you see it firsthand, it's a real eye-opener and a tremendous joy to be in their skiffs. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do us a huge favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.